Let's open God's word this afternoon to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. And once you've turned there, would you also turn in the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal to the Belgian Confession, Article 14, which begins at the very bottom of the page on 859, dealing with the creation and fall of man. It's always important when you read through or study the, the Belgian Confession, remembering it was written in 1561, a time of still very intense persecution. That's why Guido de Bray, in fact, wrote this, to defend what they were willing to die for, their faith, what they confessed. It wasn't just, let's list the Christian doctrines and talk about them. These are the things that God has taught us that we must be willing to sacrifice ourselves for. These are the things we must believe because the gospel is in them. So even as we study something as, as drastic as the creation, and especially the fall of man, we look to Jesus Christ, knowing that there is life in him. But let's begin with God's word, Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus." that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And now to our confession, article 14, the creation and fall of man on page 859. We believe that God created man from the dust of the earth and made and formed him in his image and likeness, good, just, and holy, able by his own will to conform in all things to the will of God. But when he was in honor, he did not understand it and did not recognize his excellence. But he subjected himself willingly to sin and consequently to death and the curse lending his ear to the word of the devil. For he transgressed the commandment of life which he had received, and by his sin he separated himself from God who was his true life, having corrupted his entire nature. So he made himself guilty and subject to physical and spiritual death, having become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways. He lost all his excellent gifts which he had received from God, and he retained none of them except for small traces, which are enough to make him inexcusable. Moreover, all the light in us is turned to darkness, as the Scripture teaches us. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not receive it. Here John calls men darkness. Therefore, we reject everything taught to the contrary concerning man's free will, since man is nothing but the slave of sin and cannot do a thing unless it is given him from heaven. 
For who can boast of being able to do anything good by himself, since Christ says, no one can come to me unless my Father who sent me draws him? Who can glory in his own will when he understands that the mind of the flesh is enmity against God? Who can speak of his own knowledge in view of the fact that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God? In short, who can produce a single thought since he knows that we are not able to think a thing about ourselves by ourselves, but that our ability is from God? And therefore, what the apostle says ought rightly to stand fixed and firm. God works within us, both to will and to do, according to his good pleasure. For there is no understanding nor will conforming to God's understanding and will apart from Christ's work. As he teaches us when he says, without me, you can do nothing. This is what we confess and are called to believe. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, in writing this passage to the Ephesian church, the Apostle Paul was not trying to describe some things that he had heard about, about how some people would live with darkened understanding and ignorance, lewdness, greediness, and that's what he terms the old man. Watch out for those people who are out there somewhere. He's not writing about the old man in the abstract or humanity in general or humanity as it could become in a vacuum. But Paul and the Ephesian church had never actually met someone like this. On the contrary, the description that Paul gives for the old man is of attitudes and characteristics that you could say the church in Ephesus would have been uniquely aware of. The city of Ephesus was the home of the temple that had been built to the Roman goddess Diana, also known as the Greek goddess Artemis. There was so much pride in this city, in Ephesus, that she belonged to them. That this goddess was their way of life. It defined what it meant to be Ephesian. When Paul was preaching the gospel in Ephesus in Acts 19, which took place a few, just a few years before he wrote this letter, there was a riot in the city because of Paul's preaching. Because as he was preaching Christ and people were hearing what it means to be called to faith in Jesus Christ, their lives transformed, which meant very practical things. It meant there were fewer people buying the silver miniature idols that the craftsmen were making to represent Diana, that people would come along to the temple and they would buy these and take them to their homes to remember that they had been to the fancy temple of Diana. And that also meant the parades weren't as popular and the festivals weren't as successful and the tourism industry is, was being threatened and the greatness of Ephesus is under attack by these Christians. The people in Ephesus were thinking, how can we let this happen to Diana? So they rioted. You wonder at that time in Acts chapter 19 if, if Paul and the other believers, they just, they just shook their heads. Like, how silly can this get? You might think of it the same way that, that we look at the month, month of June. 
know, it's now labeled as Pride Month. It's expected. It's expected that if you are a member of the community, whether it's a church or a, a business or a, a volunteer organization, something, even a crosswalk, you're supposed to show your colors. We're all part of an affirming, welcoming community. But, but the moment you ask a question about how God made male and female, or you even raise, maybe not even that you bring it in as a spiritual concern, but you start off with something psychological about the, the consequences of homosexuality or transgenderism, you just ask a question, not even say an answer. And all of a sudden, that supposedly welcoming, affirming atmosphere vanishes and pride turns into rage and protests and even riots, just like in Ephesus. We have seen what Paul is describing here. But who is Paul talking about? He's describing the old man. He's not saying, well, we inside the church can stand inside of our little bubble and shake our heads at the perversity and the, and the, the futility of the world out there. What does he say in verse 17? This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you, not them, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. This is not a message to the world. Now, it will have fruits to that effect, of course. But it's a message for the church. It's not for the church to arrogantly mock how foolish the world has become. It's a message for you and me to look at the futility that we can just as easily find within ourselves. After all, what good is it to shake our heads at the pride of the world when there is just as much pride inside of our hearts? That's Paul's point. That old man that he describes is just as much a description of you and me. And that's why we need the gospel as much as the world does. We need grace as much as anyone. So we look this afternoon at how the old man needs to be recreated. We'll look at that in three parts. First, the fall into his darkness. Second, the futility of his sin. And third, the freedom of his new life. The old man needs to be recreated. Now, how did we get to this point? We didn't start this way. We, as a human, nature, as a human race, we were created in the beginning in the image of God. Male and female, God created us, and he gave us our respective callings and responsibilities and opportunities that reflected how we were made. We were made for peace and unity. We were made to work. We were made to serve. We were made to love. We were made to smile. We were made to enjoy the Lord and his creation. What we were was a reflection of God's character. Even though we were made of the dust of the earth, that's our origin. We are creatures. We are of this world. We are not eternal beings. Some people think that we are eternal souls drifting about in infinity until one day God made this world and we found a physical body to dwell in and we adopt our bodies for a little while and then once that body dies, our souls are freed and we go back into that infinity. 
No, we, we are earthly creatures. We are of the earth, of this creation, directly connected to this creation, over which we have been called as God's representatives to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air. You remember those verses from Genesis chapter 1. It really means to take what God has made and to refine it, to make it bear even more fruit, to develop and grow and advance so that it brings even more glory to the Lord, to cultivate the soil, to help plants bear their fruit in a more productive way, agriculture, to work and invest and build some of the, the craftsmanship that we can work with our hands to build businesses, to build communities, to raise our children, ultimately to go from the garden in Genesis 1 and 2 to the city in Revelation 21 and 22. We do that uniquely as God's image bearers. We are not animals. Don't even use that language. We are not animals who have moved further ahead along the evolutionary timeline compared to the other animals. And that's why we're different. No. It's not the case that millions of years from now we will be supplanted by a more advanced being and then by natural selection we as a human race will die out. No. We were uniquely created by God and formed in God's image and likeness. That means that, that even though we are of the dust, we were created to uniquely reflect some of God's attributes. Belgian Confession lists just three of them. We were created to be good, just, and holy. Good. What does that mean in the garden? It means that we loved what is good and what was beautiful. We enjoyed surrounding ourselves with good things. We yearned for what is good. We cultivated that. We were also created to be just and that we, we understood how to obey God, to do what is righteous. We instinctively understood the law of God and we loved it. We loved God fully with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We never questioned that. Why would we? We had too much joy in doing it. And we were created to be holy. We're concerned about making sure that even the smallest detail reflected the majesty and the uniqueness of God. And we wanted nothing more than to see God glorified. We woke up in the morning with a song of praise on our lips, and that's how we fell asleep. We did this willingly. We weren't created to be robotic in how we served the Lord. It was a choice freely and joyfully made. We had no interest in, in doing anything else. God didn't force us to serve him because then it wouldn't be loving God. You can't force love. Love is freely given. And we wanted nothing more than to give him that love. Now I want you to think about that summary of what we are created to be and compare it to how our, our culture defines what it means to be human. Are they even close to the same? Well, they'll talk about human dignity and a, a free will even. They talk about freedom as something to aspire to, something to chase after, to sacrifice for. But where are they looking for these things? 
what's interesting is if you listen carefully to the way that they talk about those goals of freedom and, and self-identity and, and, and dignity, where are they looking for these things? It's, they talk about them as if they've never had them before, as if they are creating a brand new reality that they're advancing the human nature to something it has never been in the past. And therefore, we have to define what that new thing will be. We have to craft a brand new self-image, as if that is the highest level of achievement. I define who I am. But ask yourself, why are they looking for those things? Dignity, freedom. Identity, purpose. Why are they looking for those things? Even in a corrupted way. It's because they and us were created to be free. We're created to have an image, to have a sense of self, a a sense of purpose and belonging. That's what it means to be human. But from the height of the honor and excellency that we had in the Garden of Eden given by the Lord, in abandoning Him, we have abandoned His purpose for us and His gifts for us. And so now, we still have that that sense within us, that need for, for an identity, that need for freedom, but we look for these things in a corrupted way. We fashion them for us. We create an idol of these things for us so long as we don't have God in it. Anything that reminds us that we've been created in the image of God, that's what they want to destroy so that they can make something new of themselves. So it's interesting. They they want to escape God, but the things that they're yearning for can only be found in God. And the very fact that they are yearning for these things, freedom and goodness and dignity, is evidence that they're created in the image of God. They can't escape that fact as much as they try to corrupt it in every way. It's important to realize that we chose this. Article 14 says that man subjected himself willingly to sin and consequently to death and the curse, lending his ear to the word of the devil. You can say, well, does that mean the devil made me do it? Yes and no. The devil enticed us. The devil was there to tempt us, but but we decided. We decided to listen. We chose to give him space in the garden. We chose to agree with his lies. We chose to blame God for our wickedness. We chose to plunge ourselves into the curse of death. The Bible's way of describing that is to plunge ourselves into darkness. Verse 17, Paul says that the Gentiles, and he's not talking about an an ethnic group here, Gentiles as opposed to Jews biologically. He's using the term to describe those who are still unbelievers, where grace has not yet changed them. That's the Gentile here. The Gentiles, he said, walk in the futility of their mind, having their their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Their understanding darkened. Compare that to the light we had in the garden when we walked with God. We were created so that every thought in our minds was not futile or useless, but purposeful. We were focused. We were committed. We we learned. We were productive in how we thought. 
We understand who we were, what we were there for. We also knew we still had much more to learn, and so we loved asking God questions. And there were no obstacles to learning from him. All we had to do was wonder and marvel. And we could see our greatest joy was to be close to God. To live with God in perfect communion and love with him. We knew him. We understood who we were in his eyes. We knew his delight in us. He smiled at us. And we in turn knew how to love him back. Our our passions were all about him. Our, Our emotions were pure and productive. But from there we fell into darkness. And everything that was light was overshadowed by our hostility against God and and the image that we were created to reflect. We lived, we fell into darkness. Brothers and sisters, we will never get anywhere in understanding the hostility of our culture against the Christian gospel unless we first understand the hostility that is inherently in our own hearts against the God who made us. It does us no good to judge the world and stand in pride over it and say, well, we're not like those people. When that same pride comes from the very same corruption in the same kind of heart that despises God in the same way as much as any other human being. In our corruption, we are no better off than those who take pride in their rebellion outrightly so against God. We are no different We have plummeted as much into darkness as they have as far into the curse of death. Our entire nature is corrupted, totally depraved. There is not a single part of us that is not stained by sin and cursed with death. In our sins, we have fallen as far as any of those we might want to shake our heads at. The darkness that we see in them is a darkness we first need to see in ourselves. We cannot forget that. Because then we can understand why Paul's warning to the church is so strong here. Why we need this message as much as anyone else. Lest we too walk in, as we see in the second place, the futility of our sin. So the first question we ask is, how did we get here? The second question we ask now is, how bad is it? And here, Article 14 really leaves no stone unturned. We've transgressed the commandment of life which we had received. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we've been dying ever since. We separated ourselves from God. And our shame was so overpowering that we tried to use anything, even some leaves, to cover us from the God who made us inside and out. We made ourselves guilty and subject to physical and spiritual death. We didn't trade one good thing in the garden for another good thing. Maybe not quite as good, but close enough. No, we stand condemned eternally in that corruption. We've become wicked and perverse and corrupt in all our ways. And it keeps going. We've lost all of the excellent gifts we had received from God. And all that's left are small traces, it says, of that image, which are still enough to make us inexcusable. It's like what we mentioned earlier about the fallen man still yearning to find freedom and identity and purpose. The small traces and the imprint of God's image, you can't escape that. But we look everywhere but for God. 
to satisfy that yearning. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1. And that's why we take these good things that God gave to us, like our creativity. We turn that into abomination. We, we take the minds that think God's thoughts after him, we turn it into scheming. We turn our emotions, our passions for the Lord into a selfish idolatry. We turn our, our need to learn, our need to know, into boasting about how great we are. We have taken the way that we were created so that we can reflect God's goodness, justice, and holiness, and those very same instruments of our humanity we now use for evil and injustice and, and perversity. In verse 19, Paul starts describing, he, he describes some of the expressions of how we've done that. He, he says, you, who being past feeling, he's not saying that Gentiles have no emotions. It, ju it just means that they don't care anymore. They don't care about shame, about guilt. They walk around as if they have nothing to regret, as if they are justified in whom they've become, as if they should have a pride parade for any and all of their works, so long as it's done in rebellion against God. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, clearly that's not an exhaustive list. It's just a few things. If you wanted more, you read Romans chapter 1, or you turn to Galatians 5, where it talks about the fruits of the flesh before it lists the fruit of the Spirit. Paul's just giving what we need in this moment. He's trying to tell us, look, it's not that you've stumbled into your sin. You say to sin, oops, I'll try harder. He's saying that's not taking it realistically. It's that the corruption of our hearts is so great that we give, it, give up even trying. We don't even have shame anymore for the things that we have fallen into. We've turned our backs against him and walked deliberately the opposite direction. We give ourselves over, he describes. You voluntarily hand yourself over to become enslaved to whatever you think you need to feel better about yourself in the moment. You're constantly chasing that next idolatry. The next enslaving passion. It's like we're addicts. We need our fix when it comes to our sins. And then once we get it, we need another and more intense. We need another even more intense. Constantly driving our desire for more corruption. That's the kind of lewdness that Paul is referring to here. It's not just sexual immorality, although that's certainly first and foremost, that's often the most intense expression of this rebellion against God and the enslavement to the passions of the flesh. But there's many more passions of the flesh. It's what, whatever drives us so that we think that's what we need in order to be content. And yet these very things that we're trying to be satisfied in are the things that harm us so we'll never be satisfied. We pursue the very things that kill us, both spiritually and even physically. There are physical consequences to many of these sins. Let's list a few. Maybe the easy one is, is pornography. You know, it's defended as being harmless. It's just images on a screen, and really it's not that bad. Nobody needs to know. Nobody else has to be involved. But what does it do? 
Not just spiritually, which of course is drastically enough, but psychologically or physically. It isolates the sense of self. Takes you out of a community. It warps how the mind and the body functions. It, it's the degradation of, of those involved in that. And you start looking at them as less than human. We can go on and on about these things. Let's take something perhaps... Perhaps something that all of us are more familiar with. What about gossip? How often do we think, if I were to say what I think I want to say, what's the damage that could come of this? I'll feel good when I say it because there's a measure of power and achievement and look at me, I'm not like that person. What happens with gossip? Is it love? Does it bring reconciliation? It's a breeding ground for hatred, for abuse. Have we ever thought that what I'm about to say about that other person that doesn't need to be said might cause them to lose sleep tonight? Or maybe it's going to damage their marriage? Or maybe they've suffered with depression in the past and what I'm about to say is going to drive them back there again? Let's take another example, huh? How many advertisements have come out in the past few months about gambling on sports, because that's now legal in Ontario? Do any of those advertisements, that are all meant to be flashy and loud and exciting, do any of those advertisements remind us that gambling is purely greed? It is an idolatry of money? It's a devaluation of the connection between work and the fruits of our work? Do any of those ads tell you that if you gamble, your home might be broken apart? If you gamble, you're encouraging organized crime and violence? Not to mention the spiritual cancer of no longer being content in the Lord. Do those ads tell you anything about that? Of course not. That's not what they want. We don't expect an advertisement like that to tell us the truth, and yet we're drawn to it. It's designed to draw us to it. Because more than anything, you can say the advertising world understands the depravity of human nature. That's why they design them to communicate the way they do. They understand our doctrine better than we do ourselves. That's why Paul describes it as futility. That's why he confronts the Ephesian church and us by extension. We don't belong. We're struggling with that, right? We all have that old man, that old nature. It's, it's death working in us. The eternal agony of a human being created to know the Lord and yet walking away from Him. A nature so consumed that not only are we unable to save ourselves from that agony, we're so enslaved we don't want to be saved from it. So we cry out with the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. That you would come down. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways, we continue and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name. 
who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Isaiah 64. What misery has come to the old man who fell in the garden. What misery for you and me in our sins. Is there any hope? What about for our neighbors who live in their darkness, hopeless, despite trying everything they can to to make us think that they're not, that they're happy, that they're successful, that they're striving for good things, but whatever they create, the kingdom of their own making is the best they can make. And we look at that and how sad. That's all they have. What can be done? Look again to God's word. Because here it will show us the freedom of the new life, our third point. So first, how did we get here? We willingly chose to sin and put ourselves under the curse of corruption and death. How bad is it? So bad that we don't even want to be rescued from it. We look for salvation and peace from the very things that are destroying us. So what happens next? Without a complete transformation of who we are, we will stay in that hopelessness. So we need a Savior who can do two things. One, carry in his own flesh the curse of our sins and death. And two, fulfill in his flesh, in his human nature, what we were created to do. To love and obey the Lord completely as Adam and Eve were instructed. As we are called to do, but fail. We need a mediator who is both true God and a truly righteous man. We need Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure that for most of us, the fact that the sermon leads in this direction is not a surprise to you. We know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is exactly what we all need to be saved. But let me ask you this question. What do we expect the gospel to do? To do. And the spirit who brings that gospel, what do we expect to happen when he brings it? Remember, we're talking about our human natures, not just something that we do sometimes or a part of us. It's, It's who we are, that we were created to be good and just and holy in the image of God, but we've fallen so far from that righteousness that we can't even think straight anymore. We're slaves to our own emotions and passions. We're alienated from God. We're walking about in the futility of our minds. So me coming along in the third point of the sermon and slapping a a feel-good mention of Jesus onto the end and say, Amen, isn't enough. And to give the world nothing more than that, it's no wonder that they mock the church for being useless. What does the Bible say? Verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ. You have not learned that Christ has come into this world to leave us in that destitute and hopeless human nature, chained to be slaves forever. Now what we've become in our humanity, not even Christ can do something about And so the whole point of the gospel is is to say, well, you've just got to suffer through it and someday you'll either die or Jesus comes back and then, ta-da, everything's fine. Brothers and sisters, that's not what redemption is. 
redemption, to redeem, is to, to take a slave who is under a, a, a curse, another master, and to put them under a new life, to redeem them, rename them as someone completely different. Redemption is not to just suffer through it and escape it when we die. So that when we die, in a sense, we become less than human because our souls are freed from the, the agony of this human nature. If only we can get rid of our bodies, every, all the problems are done. So long as we get to go to heaven. We have not so learned Christ. We have not learned that to be saved means to continue walking in the futility of our minds. To carry on as if the love of God cares nothing about what our human nature has become. Instead, verse 22, to learn Christ is that we put off concerning our former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. You wonder, after all that we've learned about the old man, how is that possible? We're that wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all of our ways. How can a sinful person put off, like taking off a, a piece of clothing, when it's that very fiber of that old human nature that's the problem in the first place? That's what rebellion is. It's from the very core of who we are, running away from God. We can't just put it on and then put it off whenever it suits us, as if that's the problem. Because it won't ever happen. Keep reading. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on this, the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. What does that mean? How does that happen? Those are big words. Renewed or created. Created. That's the key word, isn't it? Created. Remember Genesis 1, when God created the first time, what power did he use to overcome the darkness and the void, the futility of this world? He spoke his word. When God said, let there be light, there was light. When God created, he saw that everything was good and even very good at the end of the sixth, uh, sixth day. And he rested on the seventh day because his work was that powerful, that perfect, worthy of reflection rest. But now, Paul is saying in Christ, that same creating word, that same power that overcomes darkness and the void and emptiness, that same word comes to the sinner, that old man, and through the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit brings the same effectiveness that created on six days. He brings light out of darkness and the futility of our minds, purpose he brings out of the void. By his spirit, we begin to think differently. We don't walk in the futility of our minds, but the, the usefulness of our minds now. We don't walk enslaved to our passions, but free to love and to show compassion and mercy. We don't walk in Christ as those still ashamed still alone, but we walk in Christ as those who have been so richly loved and therefore can be so richly loving. In Christ we put on His true righteousness and holiness 
And in Christ, we are being restored to be what we were meant to be. If you go back to Article 14, it's almost like the whole second half of the article keeps asking questions. For who can boast of being able to do anything good by himself? Since Christ says, no one can come to me unless my Father who sent me draws him. Or, or further down, who can produce a single thought? Since he knows that we are not able to think a thing about ourselves by ourselves, but that our ability is from God. You might look at those questions, and some people do, and they think, well, that's rather depressing. It sounds like we Christians, though we are redeemed by Christ, we've been forced into a brand new version of slavery where we have to close our eyes and just mumble how great God is and keep repeating that over and over and mindlessly do whatever he says. That's the Christian life. Wonderful, isn't it? Not at all. When we are recreated by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we come to the Father. We are drawn to Jesus Christ, not by our strength, but by Christ. And as the Spirit brings us in Christ to the Father, He works within us so that we begin to think. Even to borrow this phrase, about ourselves by ourselves. Now, not without grace, of course, but we are thinking about God. He's restoring our minds from the futility that we plunged ourselves into. There's still long ways to go, but, but we are free to do that now. Or as it says at the end of the article, without me you can do nothing. Some people think, oh, I can't do anything. That's not what it means. Without me you can do nothing. Yes, in your sins you can do nothing, but with Christ... Are we not with Christ in salvation? What does it mean then? We confess our helplessness in the old man that we still struggle with, but we are also confessing the effectiveness of what Christ has recreated in the new man. With Christ, we can do. In a beginning way, yes, of course, but we can. In Christ, we can begin to do what we could never do before. We are free. We are truly free to think and to feel and to move and to wonder and to ask questions and rejoice and rest and love and hope and walk. And really, we've just scratched the surface here, brothers and sisters, and what this new freedom looks like. But if we begin there, if we know who we are in Jesus Christ, if we know by what power the Spirit is recreating us and the pledge of God's love, then make sure that will continue. We don't have to envy the world that parades itself around. Look at how great they think they are. So the church has to compete with that. We don't have to join the world in celebrating what humanity can make of itself, create our own sense of identity and think, well, we need in the church to have a competing gospel that says, no, we've got something better. We have a better sense of identity. Look at us. Aren't we great? We have a community here. We speak of Christ. Because we know that whatever we create for ourselves will never be any better than what the world creates for itself. And in both instances, we're creating illusions. Something that's not real. But in Christ, the dignity of the human being is restored. 
In Christ, the purpose of our existence is made clear. In Christ, the way we think is unchained from the blindness of our rebellion against God. In Christ, we are free, as he said himself, free indeed. That's the gospel we get to walk by. The gospel that gives us genuine hope for ourselves, but also to carry that to the lost. The gospel of everything that we have gained in Jesus Christ, including the regaining of ourselves in the Lord by grace. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it's the wonder of all of this. When we we take stock of what humanity has become, what we have chosen to do, when when we are honest in our reflection upon ourselves, what's in my heart, what am I thinking about, what am I desiring, what am I looking for, what's my place, what's my purpose, what am I hoping for, When when we ask these questions honestly of ourselves, the answers are quite disturbing. When we look at Jesus Christ, the futility is replaced with purpose. And the the pride is replaced with a thankful heart. And we look at these things and say, how can this be, Lord? We are no different than those around us. And we look at you and we say, look at the grace that God has given us. And we wonder, how could you do this for us? Why am I any different? And the answer is, I'm not. But in our prayers of rejoicing, we come back to you and say, that is how great is the love of the Lord for his people. And that's our rejoicing this afternoon, Lord. That is our wonder. And so we pray that by the word that is preached to us, that call to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we are not looking for just our problems to be papered over and then ignored, but we are looking for true rejuvenation, which we find in Jesus Christ, which is delivered to us by His Spirit, which is guaranteed to us because that is the pleasure of our Father who loves us. This is real. And Lord, it gives us such joy to say that back to You, to confess Your work, confess Your grace to us. We pray, Lord, that that would stir joy in our hearts to sing about it and to express it to one another and to share that joy with our neighbors because they need it as much as we do. And we pray, Lord, that that hope may be spread throughout this world today. For Jesus' sake we pray this.